0: Andrew Gillsmith had a ringside view of modern American history and commerce when he worked at a prestigious Wall Street firm delivering mail to a senior vice president, Jeff Bezos, who was then dabbling and experimenting in his earliest creations of what became known as Amazon. This big-time firm chucked the project, while Bezos moved on to become one of the richest men on the planet. Andrew Gill-Smith has worked in high places in the worlds of finance and technology and he is out with his new book, Our Lady of the Artelex, part dystopian, futuristic and touching on faith and religion and on the raw and controversial topics of artificial intelligence and transhumanism, the strange melding of man and machine. And Andrew Gil Smith is my guest on this episode.
1: Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne.
0: Artificial intelligence and transhumanism, the melding of man and machine, are topics Andrew Gil Smith knows lots about in his career in the technology and communication sectors, and in his religious studies, faith, and observations. Our Lady of the Artilex, the new novel from this science fiction writer, dives deep into questions of consciousness, faith, and artificial intelligence. The story has a strange but engrossing opening. War leaders are already on edge as Artilex. Their next-generation androids begin reporting a strange apocalyptic vision that only they can see. What should we make of all this artificial intelligence? Andrew Gil Smith will discuss it with me. Yeah, I
2: mean, I think it would depend on who who you asked. Um, if you talk to a lot of the leading researchers in AI today, they will tell you that this is exactly what they're working toward. You know, machines that are um, not only capable of passing a Turing test, right, which is the classic, you know, test of, of um, how close a robot can be to a human, right? Could it? Can you interact with it basically behind a blind screen and be convinced that you're dealing with an actual human being? Can you go beyond that to the point where they actually have free will and inner lives? And can they distinguish between right and wrong? There's a lot of research that's being done on this right now. There are a lot of different approaches to it that are being tested out,
0: Before we get to my interview with Andrew Gil-Smith, it's first time for our weekly segment of Future Shock 2.0 with workforce trends expert Ira Wolf. So women have been an integral part of the labor force for for decades, Ira. And uh, what's going on now? There's some new studies and findings. Yeah, John, our
3: Future Shock 2.0 listeners are likely familiar with and and probably tired of hearing already about the great resignation, quiet quitting, great re- reevaluation, the ambition recession. Uh, but here's a new one: uh the great breakup. So McKinsey and Company just released their Women in the Workplace report uh 2022. And what they found is that women leaders are switching jobs at the highest rate ever. So they attribute it to what they call the broken wrong where women in entry-level positions are promoted to managerial positions at a lower rate than men. So here's a case in point. For every 100 men who are promoted from entry-level to manager, only 87 women are, 82 women of color are, and only 75 Latinas. This is even more shocking. For every woman at the director level who gets promoted, two women directors leave the company. And if you look at some of the reasons why... There's still only one out of four C-suite leaders who are women, except that women now make up 60% of all college grads and postgraduate students. So it's not that there's not enough qualified women or educated women. um, It's that there's just this mismatch and it's really worse for women of color. But ultimately, what I found was how are companies sort of getting away with this? What games are they playing? How are women being marginalized? And what the study found was that women leaders are two times as likely as men to spend time working on DEI, diversity, equity, and and inclusion. Now, DEI isn't just about crafting a mission statement, sending out some press releases, matching quotas, creating a new marketing plan uh, for recruitment, but it takes time. It takes time and effort if you do it right. And it's about organizational change and it spreads people that are involved with dei pretty thin if that's their focus but get this in the majority of companies dei work isn't acknowledged at all in performance reviews it's not rewarded and it's not considered part of the overall metrics so if women are doing it they're getting penalized because they're not being measured the same way that others are in another example women in general get fewer mentors and sponsors um, so there's no opportunity to to move up in the organization. Uh, they get less support for career development. They, they're called out more for making mistakes and missing deadlines and goals than, than men and white women leaders. Um, so I can go on and on and on, but people can just go out and Google women in the workplace to 2022, download the report. And let me close with this. If you remember, John, you probably remember the movie Network. Um, It it was on Broadway uh, as well, uh, just a few years ago. Some of the listeners may get this reference. Younger listeners may not. So you can just go up and Google it. But Google, I'm mad as hell. So in the movie, there was a character, Howard Beale. He was fed up with the way his organization was treating him and other employees. So during what was supposed to be his final day, his final broadcast, he went on a rant and declared, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. Well women leaders are mad as hell and they aren't going to take
0: it anymore. <laughs> Ira Walt, thank you. IRA is a workforce trends expert, top five global thought leader in his field and host of the popular Geek geezers and Googleization podcast. Speaking of top-rated podcasts, tune into the ever-popular Odeon Capital Conversations podcast each week with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt van Alstine, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner and also with yours truly on episode 44. Out now we talk about the rise of Red China, Iran, the US economy, inflation and much more. The Audience Capital Conversations podcast is all up there on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We
1: keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people.
0: My guest is science fiction writer Andrew Gil Smith, author of. Our Lady of the Artalex, his new novel, which dives deep into questions of consciousness, faith, and artificial intelligence. Midwest Book Review calls Our Lady of the Artalex a metaphysical tour de force spanning time, space, and faith that proves hard to put down. I'm your host, John. Aidan Byrne. Andrew Gillsmith you're welcome to my show and before we deep dive into uh, your new book I must say it's fascinating Our Lady of the Artilex. I didn't know what to make of it at first I got a little scared off by the title but then as I went through it and read some of the reviews I was reassured but we'll get into it. You have a most unusual background. um, I know you're a writer, but you also work in the um, tech fields. Uh, you always wanted to be a writer from the earliest days. And could you take us to when you were in New York and where your life went after college?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, so, so I, came I came to New York. York. I, you I, you know, I, I knew one thing. I wanted, I wanted to be in New York, York and, and I wanted to be a writer. So I guess I knew two things. things. And, and I, I got, got a job. Got job. I got a job offer of at school, school to write for um, The Village, Village. Voice right this, this was back, back in uh 1994 uh, um and i was, I was really really excited, really excited about it i thought this is the beginning of, of something great and, and wonderful um but then i then they told me what the pay would be, be. and i'm mean, you know it, i mean new york's, york's expensive, expensive even back then god knows how expensive it is now i left uh about 20, uh, uh, 20 years ago but, but even then it was like i'm not gonna, gonna be able to make this work unless i have you know, know 20 roommates and, and some rats you know <laughs> uh <laughs> and and so, so then, so I was like, okay, okay what do I do? Well, I, I ended up getting another offer kind of out of the blue. It was very strange from a hedge fund. And this was in the days before hedge funds were so commonplace. I didn't even know what a hedge fund was, but it was a company that hired on two tracks. They hired true rocket scientists, uh, top graduates from the Indian Institute of Technology, winners of the International Math Olympiad, et cetera. And then they hired people like me. With, with a liberal a arts, arts background, background to kind of, of run, run the business, business operations, operations right? right? To become, become traders, traders or salespeople or what have you. And yeah. I, ended I ended up getting, getting an offer from them and yeah. you know, it was it was for, for a lot more money, money so I was like, like well,
3: I'll just, just write, write on the, on the side. side. <laughs> but <laughs>
2: but of, course of course I didn't write for many, many, many years after, after that.
0: And that hedge fund was D.E. Shaw, where you ran into somebody today who's exceedingly wealthy and was married to someone who herself is a writer for his former wife yeah us tell us about this famous character yeah Yeah, so so what what they did um back in the
2: the day with with uh people like like me liberal arts arts grads is they would start everybody in the mailroom and And it was a a great idea idea, actually i thought i think think it was really really kind of kind of cool and interesting interesting because it forced you to circulate and meet people around the firm doing different different things And then it was was kind of sink or swim. swim. It was was up to you to to figure out where you would fit in and ask for a job, essentially, to be trained. Well, well, while I was delivering mail, one of the people that I delivered mail mail to was this quirky senior vice president of the bank, little antisocial, didn't like to make eye contact. You go into his office, he had books piled up to the ceiling, right? And one day I got the courage to ask him what he was doing. He said, well, I'm trying to figure out how to sell these books on the Internet. And I laughed. I said, well, that is the stupidest thing I think I've ever heard in my life. Because this This is 1994. 1994. Nobody was putting credit cards online. Nobody was buying anything. Certainly, if you were going to sell something, why would it be books? And I asked him all that. He said, "Ah, you know, I think it could work. It's maybe the beginning of something bigger. I'll probably sell other things eventually. But for now,
0: I buy lists or email lists, email people. Then they email me back or they call me and I take the credit card and then I drop ship
2: the – the books out of his office and that was Bezos that was Jeff Bezos wow. and not long after that I mean I think literally a matter of weeks or months he picked
0: up and moved to Seattle and that was the beginning of Amazon so how long did you stay at D.E. Shaw and then what did you do after that
2: so there were two companies that, that Shaw was incubating at the time one was the Amazon um, which they declined to continue funding actually so jeff took it on himself and that was you know probably one one of the biggest mistakes in in financial history um, on the part of the bank the other one was a company called juno online services which um if you're of a certain age you might remember it was the first free email company and so i went to work for juno and did finance business development we were really just trying to figure out how how can you monetize an audience a digital audience back then i did that for a while uh, I then went from there to a uh, women's media company called iVillage.com, which is now part of Hearst. Mm. Did the same thing, kind of helped build their sales and, and marketing um, operations. Um, left there and started my own business, which was a digital subscription company called DietSmart. We scaled that to profitability, which back then was kind of unusual and sold it. Uh, and then I realized for the first time in my life, I had you know the, the, the wherewithal, the, the time and
0: space, to do what i really wanted but i didn't
2: know what i wanted to do i just I didn't, I didn't want to be in new york anymore so i left new york and moved back to the
0: midwest right and your passion always was writing and um I, you you have a new book out obviously it's your first published book you have two others which are waiting to be published and you're today uh living uh, with your wife and kids in missouri or st louis missouri uh, but you grew up in near kentucky right and um, yeah tobacco country I believe.
2: Uh, tobacco, tobacco country for, for sure um, yeah, yeah we you know we, we actually had a tobacco, tobacco farm in Kentucky not a big one, one at all um, know, it was more like know, a hobby than, than anything else but um,
0: yeah, yeah I grew up, up in a town called
2: Evansville which is just, just a you know a little, a little typical midwestern town, town on the Ohio, Ohio river right across, across the border from, border from Kentucky.
0: So your book just published um, it's really interesting and you know somebody picking it up may not know what to make out of this fellow Andrew Gill Smith. And it speaks on some levels to your faith. You're, you're, you're now a practicing Catholic, but your life wasn't always this, wasn't at this place at peace with yourself. And you're doing all your writing and, and things are good. But there was a long period in your life when, um, it was difficult and you despaired. It just wasn't a very, um, optimistic time for you. Tell us about it.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I grew up in a, a nominally Methodist household, right? It was just sort of um, no disrespect. But I mean, it was kind of undifferentiated American Protestantism, okay? Um, I went to an evangelical school, so I kind of had that influence as well. I, You know, my family was religious. We weren't overly religious, but we were religious. We went to church. Um, you know, we, we said prayers usually before meals, but it, it never really – connected for me. It never really sunk in deeply for me as a child. And in my teens, my mom, who I was very, very close to, um, developed brain cancer when I was 16. And she passed away when I was 18. So right when I was going away to college. And,
0: you know, I think everybody has a
2: trauma or maybe more than one trauma in their life. That that was certainly the biggest one in mine. And my reaction to it was, I think like a lot of people who have experiences like that, just become very angry. I was you know, uh, mad at God, uh, mad at the world, mad at everybody mm-hmm. else, mad at the rest of my family, mad at myself. And, um, so I really mm-hmm. kind of set about this project of, um, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional or knowing at the time, but I mean, it was, you know, how, how, how to become, become a nihilist, <laughs> you know, how to believe in nothing. And, um, the way that I did that was by studying religion in college. Cause I thought, well, I can pick this apart, you know, uh, deconstruct it, and, and lay it up on the table, you know, vivisected, and, uh, and that'll be the end of it. Um, but that did, that's not exactly how it went, right? So, like, I never completely lost a longing for faith. And at some point in my in my life in New York, I started to pay more attention to John Paul II. And this was in late in his papacy. And he was this old, bent, sick figure, but who still had so much dignity and power and grace and courage and i i thought there's gotta be something to that for me anyway and i found myself drawn more and more toward roman catholicism um flirted with it for years and years and years but ultimately converted um after i married my wife who was raised a roman catholic
0: that's quite quite a journey and interesting to hear you mention john paul he was the influence for a lot of people of your generation and later generations for returning to the faiths or it emboldened them in their faiths. And there's probably been no other Pope quite like him in, in generations.
2: I, I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't know, know when we'll see his likes, likes again. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, but well, he certainly he was a great man, man and
2: uh, you know, um, a profound influence on me.
0: So you're a science fiction writer. You live in St. Louis. Missouri and you as you just mentioned to me there a moment ago you were like you're a lifelong student of religion you're halfway through a master's degree in data science and in this note somebody sent me sadly advanced statistics broke your brain and you're unlikely to finish that but <laughs> you're, you're a bright guy so that takes us up to your new book Our Lady of the Artelex and there's been a, f- a few reviews out there on it and um Some lavish you with praise. And there's, you can tell us about the book, just kind of give us a quick summary. But I want to read this first. Somebody posted this review. I don't think I've read anything like this before. I really love the way the author, that you uh, dabbled into both the spiritual realm and the artificial intelligence world. He's created something here that is, thought-provoking and hard to put down, looking forward to more works from this author, Andrew Gil-Smith. And I mean, I might add to that, of course, that it takes us to a future time, it takes us to artificial intelligence, it takes us um, to the world of faith and religious fervor, and it, it makes us question a lot of things. But could you First, give us a quick summary without spoiling it for readers who are going to buy this.
2: Sure. Um, so it, it is set about 250 years in the future. <clears throat> the world is a very different place um, in, in some ways, and in other ways, also so different. Um, it is, uh, the, the political maps have changed quite a bit. Um, there's been a conflict uh, between um, uh, Christianity and Islam that has led, actually, in this world to a true reconciliation between Catholics and Muslims, and I think that happens in history. I think that's not so, I don't think that's so far-fetched. I mean, you can look at World War II and the post-World War II era to see that, right? That sometimes after, after bloody conflict, you can find that you have more in common um, than, than what separates you, and I think that is the case with Muslims and Catholics today, even. Um, so, these two groups are kind of united against um, what I would call a more militant kind of um, secularism, that predominates in other parts of the world, including Western Europe, uh, North America, and, and China. Um, in this world, um, Artilex, which are kind of the, the the next generation androids, are a luxury item. Um, and everyone, almost everyone, injects implants, noetic implants to enhance their cognition and perception and to treat mental illnesses and, and so on and so forth. And what happens to set the action off is that um, um, the artilects begin reporting a vision Um, of what seems to be the Virgin Mary. Um, And most people write this off as a hoax, you know, or a hack of some kind. But then one of these artifacts who happens to belong to a very powerful industrialist shows up in a basilica claiming to be possessed. And there's really only one person who can figure out what's going on. That's our main character, who is both an exorcist and a former neuroscientist. And he's sent down to investigate and that kind of kicks off, off the action.
0: My guest is science fiction writer Andrew Gil-Smith, author of Our Lady of the Artilex. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. World leaders are already on edge as Artilex. These are next generation Androids. You might have to explain Androids for a broader audience. Begin reporting a strange apocalyptic vision that only they can see, but when an Artelect Belonging to the wealthiest man in Africa shows up at the Basilica of Our Lady of Nigeria, claiming to be possessed. The stakes are raised. And so it goes on from there. Then there's this important character. The the Vatican sends Father Gabriel, who's an exorcist and former neuroscientist, to investigate. And this priest quickly finds himself swept up in a conspiracy of global and possibly supernatural dimensions. So, that I don't get completely muddled here um, and others, um, androids are what? So, androids,
2: you know, they're a staple of science fiction. I mean, essentially, they are humanoid robots. You know, robots that are made in in man's image, that look like us, that talk like us, um, are, you know, in in some treatments virtually indistinguishable from human beings. Um, So, in this world, um, the science has advanced to the point where these androids, which which are called artilex. Artilex is for artificial intellect. They are capable of moral judgment. They have free will. They understand right and wrong. And yet they have the, you know, a certain place in society typically is, you know, being attached to wealthy people um, in a position of almost servitude. And the interesting, I guess, theological question for me was, what what would that mean? Like, what would it mean if we really did create artificial intelligence in our own image? And we, who are created in my belief, God, Mm -hmm. right. That was capable of moral autonomy. Right. I mean, and, and free will, what would, what would happen? How would we, how would we interact? How would we relate to that kind of an intelligence? But really more importantly, what would God do? I mean, if, 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 you know if there were beings that were created that were worthy of a soul would god give them souls would he insult them or not i mean you know i think i leave that to the theologians i'm just i'm just a science fiction writer who likes fun and interesting ideas but that's kind of the premise
0: well it's a fun and interesting idea and um i mean it's sure yeah it's science fiction but is it beyond the realms of possibility I- yeah i mean i think it would depend on who who
2: you asked um if you talk to a lot of the leading researchers in AI today, they will tell you that this is exactly what they're working toward. You know, machines that are um, not only capable of passing a Turing test, right? Which is the classic, you know, test of, of um, how close a robot can be to a human, right? Could it, can you interact with it basically behind a blind screen and be convinced that you're dealing with an actual human being? Can you go beyond that to the point where they actually have free will and inner lives? um and can they distinguish between right and wrong there's a lot of research that's being done on this right now there are a lot of different approaches to it that are being tested out um, you know in, in my book um, the way that this is accomplished is is really the way that we use that we train AI today right you give it a set of problems train it on on a controlled data set and then allow it to, to begin to extrapolate from that right mm-hmm. so it's put through a series of simulations of moral scenarios, right, where it has to make a decision and there are consequences to those decisions. And those consequences over time form its conscience.
0: Well, we do know how sophisticated and all the appearances of um, of, of the human touch, as it were, uh, the way a lot of this AI has developed, there's, there's certain fundamental things. You pick up the phone and you're greeted by um, prompts with a human voice on the other end. We have robotics in um, offices and so on, and we have other forms of AI that has been, may manifest itself in sort of human-like transactions. But that's really separate, I guess, from, that's really separate from what we would regard as a clone of humanity. Does any of this get, I mean, does this whole, development as well, Uh, and maybe they're connected, transhumanism, we hear that brought up a lot, you know, lately, transhumanism, and the way they're experimenting to create a kind of a superior human being, are they connected with this AI movement and androids and all of that stuff?
2: I, 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 well, I certainly think that they are, um, but they're not the same, right? I mean, so I work in an industry in advertising technology that makes use of AI all the time, right? I mean, we're constantly looking at um, minute signals of human behavior, right? Where do you direct your attention? How do you tilt the screen of your phone when you're looking at a video that tells us what are you really paying attention to? How long do you linger as you're scrolling down a page, right? All of these contextual signals get fed into algorithms that then predict future behavior, right? And, tell it, and try, to, try to build a model of what, your, what matters to you. And you know, advertisers—that information is extremely valuable to advertisers because they use it to sell you things. Um, so I'm comfortable with AI up mm-hmm. to a point. I think I think there needs to be regulation around it. I think people need to be a little more. There needs to be more of a public discussion about it. What troubles me more than AI is transhumanism. And the basic idea here—I mean, Ray Ray Kurzweil is the great you know prophet and proponent of transhumanism. Um, and what he calls the singularity is that is a merging of humanity with machine. So it begins with, you know, bodily enhancements, right. Prosthetics, you know, artificial hips and joints and things, all of which we can agree are great things. yeah, Right. But it goes from there quickly to um, brain computer, I'm sorry, brain computer interfaces, um, something. So brain computer interfaces, which is something that Elon Musk, for example, is currently working on. Um, among others. Lots of people are working on this.
0: this Brain-computer interfaces. That's extraordinary thought, even.
2: It is. And I think, honestly, a a fairly scary one.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: Because, you know, again, I mean, there will be social benefits that come from this, right? There will be improvements in cognition. There will be a diminishment in mental health. Uh, I'm I'm sorry, in in mental illness. Um, There might be sensory uh, enhancement um, opportunities around it. But the the problem is you, you do approach a point where you're no longer sure whether you have your own free will and whether your thoughts are your own. And um, that to me is a lot more dangerous than external AI. I'm not worried about Terminators rising up and you know coming back from the future and blasting us all to death with lasers. I'm a lot more worried about us turning ourselves into servants to machines, right, by becoming machines ourselves.
0: Well, you, you said something there. You said you're worried about us losing our free will. Is that possible? I think uh, – so th- there are
2: a bunch of ways to answer that. Um, I mean, I would say theologically, no. I don't believe it is. I don't think that it will happen because I I, th- I believe in an ordered universe, um, a, mm-hmm. a purposeful universe, um, what, what I call in the book a sacramental universe. Mm-hmm. Technically, is it possible? Well, technically, today there is actual, real disagreement over whether free will even exists,
0: right? Among uh, among the intelligentsia or among the intelligentsia people? among
2: neuroscientists. Okay, there's a series of experiments that were done not so long ago. It's on the order of ten years ago or so, and they looked at brain activity as it relates to decision making. And it was simple things like, you know, pick up either the the red cup or the blue cup, right? Or, you know, give a thumbs up or a thumbs down signal, things like this. What they found is that there is a potentiating activity in our neurons that actually precedes the decision to act. Now, you can get really technical about this stuff, but, but some people drew the conclusion from this that, you know, we are not really the pilots of our own mind, right? I mean, we tend to all think of ourselves as having a little I, the letter I, that sits somewhere inside our brain that makes decisions and is the core of who we are, right? But some people would look at those experiments and say, well, wait a second, before the I knows whether it's going to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down or pick up a red cup or a blue cup, there's activity that already predetermines the outcome of that, okay, so, you know, technically, I mean, it, the science is frankly far beyond my ability to understand it. I, yeah. I know about it to know that there are there is a legitimate debate about it, but I also know enough about human nature to know that if there were a way to rob people of their free will, to get them to do what you want them to do, to buy what you want them to buy, to think the way that you want them to think, there absolutely would be people and organizations out there that would pursue that
0: Yeah. As much as- well, I think they used to call that in the marketing and advertising field as subliminal advertising. So how they drove a lot of consumer um, um, needs, if you will, created needs and desires. Um, but transhumanism is quite quite frightening if you think of its potential ramifications because we've been humanity. We in the West, we've been trying to push the boundaries here of longevity. You know, we can replace all our body parts eventually. Heart. Prosthetics and push beyond 80, 90, 100, maybe 110. Does people think we live 140? I mean, well, it's so, really, so, so pr- it's it's really to-
2: Promethean, isn't it? Right. I mean, it, it's, it, it is, and this is what all science fiction began in, right? Mary Shelley wrote the, uh, the first science fiction novel, it was Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. And it is about stealing fire from the gods, and it is about, you know, seizing immortality right
0: mm-hmm.
2: um and 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 that is you know if you listen to what kurzweil and, and the the ardent transhumanists say that's the goal you know they they are they want to usher in a new era where man and machine are merged human the, the limitations of biology and of human thinking the human mind are transcended and we can live forever
0: yeah so yeah. that's
2: great until you start to think what 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 would you do with all of that time <laughs>
0: Yeah, you yeah there would be a massive boredom, but then I guess subliminal advertisers would come up with some needs that's and desires that you may actually not want. But, um, so that's why there's this whole thing about the a theft of body parts, even and young baby body parts yeah, that's yeah. been very controversial and it shows up in the news here and there. Um, you know, we're talking about aborted babies here. Um, yeah, yeah. and, and the using that for scientific research. And that sort of ties in on one level with transhumanism and just what you were talking about.
2: It, it does. And again, without spoiling anything in the book or what's coming in the next book, because the next book gets even deeper into this stuff. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, we have a long history um, as a species of experimenting on each other. And it's checked by ethics. It's checked by professional standards and by laws. But but what what concerns me is that that impulse that that unquenchable curiosity right is a part of human nature mm-hmm. and if you look at for example the history of like genocides in many cases concentration camps genocides were human laboratories right i mean they're places of extermination there's a political very much political dimension to it, but it's also kind of in ha, has been shrouded in, um, you know, this sort of like veneer of scientific advancement. Yeah. Right. You have to look, I mean, you can certainly look at the, the camps in World War II and the the atrocious experiments that were being performed there. Um, so in, in you know, in, in my book, um, part of the legacy, I guess, of of the artilects is that they are in a lot of ways, the result of this kind of experimentation that has gone on in in genocides in the past.
0: And that's what makes it even more engrossing, the way you approach this uh, book, and you wrote it with all of that as, as your background, and it premised a lot of the the narrative. Our Lady of the Artilex so it reminds us of Marian apparitions, and um, as I recall, there's only one um marian apparition in our recent ages that was um authenticated in africa by the vatican and uh that was in rwanda and that happened prior to the horrible genocide were you influenced by this whole because you became a catholic convert did, did marian apparitions and the blessed mother and you know the way you um you're close there to the Blessed Mother. Did that influence your writing and this whole um, novel, this fiction?
2: Yes. I mean, a short answer is yes. Um, I mean, the novel is dedicated to um, to, to Our Lady um, mm-hmm. for a reason. I have a, uh, a very special love and devotion for her. Um, the apparition you're referring to, I believe, is Our Lady of Kubeho, um, which is in Rwanda. And yes, it was before the genocide. And the interesting thing to me about that is that it's essentially the same message um, that Our Lady delivered at Akita in Japan, at La Salette, and at Fatima. And it's the same message, I think, that Our Lady delivers in all apparitions, which is prayer and penance. Um, There are warnings, right? There's a prophetic nature to it um, about things that are going to happen. Um, But the core of the message is prayer and penance.
0: Who should read your book? I'm sure you're going to answer everybody. You want to get sales on this. But would it appeal to any particular kind of reader? Uh Would any of it go over their head or will it be drawn in by it? I sense that they'll be drawn in by it because these concepts, although high tech and high science, um, we it's so much part of our vocabulary more and more in today's world.
2: I think so. I mean, uh, it's so far, it's gotten, um, you know, a really good reception from, from all quarters. Um, you know, what, one of the things that was really, really important to me in doing this is I I did not want to write a preachy book. I'm not, I mean, this is not a book that's designed to convert anyone. Um, mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's a story. It's an interesting story. It ties in different aspects of world history, it ties in the Fatima prophecies and some thoughts on, on the future of AI and transhumanism. Um, but I th- you know, I, as somebody who has a very scientific worldview, as somebody who has been an agnostic, an atheist, you know, who has explored different religious um, viewpoints, um, I really wanted to do justice to them. I didn't want to create straw men and knock them down. I have no interest in that. So there's, um, you know, there's a fair amount of Islamic content in the book, some characters that come from an Islamic background. Um, there are characters who are agnostic. And I think all of them. Um, have a seat at the table. Um, and I think anybody who's interested in questions around purpose and meaning, anybody who has an interest in teleology um, would, be, would, be a, would be a good reader for the book. But I also think, like, if you just like a good science fiction story uh, about yeah. robots and, you know, <laughs> world-ending plots, uh, I think you'll be entertained.
0: Yeah, through history and, you know, the age of the Enlightenment, um, and when the Christendom changed and made the Reformation and more science and, uh, and knowledge of the sciences entered our world, skepticism grew. And uh, some of the greatest skeptics and agnostics were people of science. And yet I know on the other side there were people of science who were people of great faith.
2: You know, I have uh, – this is getting into some of the material that I think is going to be central in the, in the sequel to the book there will be a sequel. I have a really good friend who is Eastern Orthodox and, um, he almost became a monk actually. I mean, he's a very holy man. He's very interesting, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And I have had conversations with him about the, you know, the, the, the schism between, um, Orthodoxy and Catholicism. And I remember talking with him one time about what he thought was at the root of it. And there's politics, you know, there was the parochialism of, 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 you know, Western Europe at the time, compared to the cosmopolitanism of of Constantinople. But he thinks that we we Latins, as he would call us, went wrong when we fully embraced scholasticism. This idea that the faculty of reason, the purpose of the faculty of reason is to understand reality. The Sufis, and to some extent the Eastern Orthodox, would say, and, and in fact, I mean, I think some Catholic thinkers would say this too. The purpose of the faculty of reason is not to understand reality because the end point of reason is the insufficiency of reason. You, you cannot understand everything about this world through that faculty. The purpose of the faculty of reason is actually the control of the appetites, right? But understanding wisdom comes through faith. It comes sometimes through revelation. Not to say that, again, reason doesn't play a role in it, but if that is your only lens, if you're only looking at the world through that lens, you're going to get a distorted view of reality. And I think, honestly, when I look at the history of Western civilization and where we are today as a civilization, there seems to be a lot of truth in that.
0: You mentioned uh, there's a lot of Muslim, Islamic characters in, in, in your latest tome. My question then is, can we all get along, Muslim, Catholic, Christian, uh, Jewish, your thoughts?
2: I think so. Um, you know, I I have a, a, a great love and respect and admiration for Islam. Um, part of that's just through life experiences, you know, friends of mine who are Muslim and watching them practice their faith. And part of it is through study. And obviously, there are really important theological differences, you know, that we have. But what I find is, you know, when I'm talking with um, a devout Muslim, right, There's so much more in common. I mean, uh, you know, the starting point often is, um, you know, in Islam, uh, the Blessed Virgin is very
0: celebrated. Mm.
2: Great honor is accorded to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Great honor. But more than that, you know, I think that, you know, there's a common worldview at the root of it, which is that um, we we don't live in a nihilistic universe, a random universe. We live in a purposeful sacramental universe yeah right where our beliefs and our actions and our moral decisions have consequences yeah in eternity
0: yeah um people will um rebut what you've just said there and says oh at its core there's a lot of violence um within the islamic tradition and that muslims the, the, the the some of the devout ones create their own communities within a nation and never integrate i'm just presenting to you what the counter-argument might be. But I have to add that I, I know some wonderful, really kind, sweet Muslim people living in America today. So, but your reaction to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I reject that completely, um, you know, with all due respect mm. to anybody who thinks that way. Um, I, you know, it, it's not the Muslims who are flying around dropping smart bombs all over the world today. It's not really today the Muslims that are you know invading other countries and running roughshod over them to install governments that are you know more or less favorable to to their ideology. I think um, every ideology is subject to the weaknesses and vicissitudes of human nature right. And religions are, are not necessarily an exception to this. Um, but I mean, my God, look at look at the beginning of uh, the so-called Enlightenment in Europe, and how you know how that got started—a bloodbath in France, right—that was that that spread out from France to the rest of Europe, and you know rolled and rolled and rolled, and you know found its its you know sort of apotheosis, I would say, in Soviet and Chinese communism, which are two of the bloodiest ideologies in history. If you're looking at body counts, so, so I, I think that that's I think that's kind of a I, I, I just don't think that's fair um, to to Muslims.
0: So peaceful coexistence and um has to come from our heart and uh, you reference a lot of history there. Our Lady of the Artalex it's on sale now. Um, where people go up on amazon do you have a website or anything you want to share us about picking up copy ordering it for christmas
2: sure i mean it's on amazon um right now it's on kindle unlimited so if you have kindle unlimited it's free i have a, a twitter account so you can follow me at um at andrew gillsmith on twitter um i will have a website i don't have one yet but i'm working on that and that'll be um andrewgillsmith.com and i'm always on goodreads goodreads is I, if you're a reader and um, you, know, you like interacting with other readers, Goodreads is your community.
0: Andrew Gil-Smith, thank you for being on my show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: You are listening to Dig Life Deep
1: with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's nine seven three five two nine four six nine nine. Nine seven three five two nine four six nine nine. Email burndesk at gmail dot com. That's burndesk B Y R N E Desk at Gmail dot com. at gmail dot com.
3: Subscribe for free.